It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race in association with Unibet Poker, the poker podcast that is Laurel on the streets but Yanni between the sheets. I'm David Lappin, I'm here as usual with Darrow Kearney and this week we are joined by a man who has four runner-up finishes but not a single bracelet at the World Series of Poker. He is Alan the Chainsaw Kessler. We'll also be joined by Twitch Phenom and man who put the Spraggy in Finton and Spraggy. Spraggy. I'll also be torn a new one by Daryl Kearney and guest Samir Singh. For a mistake I made in my grudge match with Ian Simpson, Ian will bring us all the latest from the WPT and High Roller Bowl plus a preview of the now running Unibet online series. But first... We're joined now by a man who graced us with his presence back in season three, around about this time of the year, actually. Uh, there's a reason for that. He is the Poker Oracle, and for the next two months, the all-knowing WSOP star. He is, of course, Kevin Kevmath Mathers. Kevin, welcome back to the Chip Race. Uh, thanks. I'm honored to be invited back to uh, what I hope will be the award-winning Chip Race podcast. Don't forget to get us to punch your Chip Race regular card before you leave. Six appearances on the show, and we actually pay you for the seventh one. Oh, nice, nice. I'm, I'm hoping to get the patches, too, this summer. I, I've heard that there's some available. Well, we'll definitely bring you a patch, don't worry. No question. Yes. Okay, since we spoke, I couldn't help but notice a nice little score on your record. You came second last month, I think, in the Hard Rock Seminole 300 side event for maybe 7 or 8K, is that right? Yes, that was a pleasant surprise for me. That was my best cash ever. Congratulations. Thank you. It was kind of weird because I started at final table 10 out of 10 in chips. I had like five big blinds and just basically people went nuts against each other. The mm. chip winner basically knocked everyone out and I just hung in there and it was basically push fold and we got the free hand and we just decided to make a deal. And basically it was like second, third chopped and we gave him first place and that was it. So I was happy. Yeah, I really approve of that game plan of going in short and just laddering to second. That's a, <laughs> it's a winning strategy. And then basically winning every hand, winning every all-in. That may be a big part of strategy corner this week, but it's, yeah. it's a helpful thing for everyone. It definitely is, yeah. Well, first and foremost, the WSAP is just kicking off. Um, apart from my co-host, David, going for the very first time, what's the single biggest change we can expect for this year's series? Uh, I think the most interesting change has been the inclusion of the big blind anti It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, everyone's been raving about it. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to getting out there now for the first time and, of course, playing. I think uh, eight of the 78 events will have the format. I'm not, I'm not sure if any of the games I'm going to play will have it, but it is a, a format I, I've played a couple of times now in Europe, so looking forward to that. Uh, yes, and, and you know, hearing that you're coming out to Vegas for the first time, David, I mean, I'm hoping that you're going to bring out the uh, dance moves that have that's gone viral. You know, viral is a very good way to describe that dance move, I think, yeah. I think more people need to see this live. We don't want to see the video. We want to see you know, the, whole, the whole act. Yeah, you're going to be doing this for the rest of your life. Yes, it, yeah, it's basically burnt. I mean, it's been retweeted so many times, it's been burned into my memory. It's like every second. It's just like, you, you can't get it out of your head. Maybe, maybe, you get like a, maybe you have like a group of people doing it all at once. I don't know. Yeah, it's the new Macarena, yeah. Yeah, it seems simple enough. And David, you could probably make a lot of money uh, actually coaching people how to do that uh, rather unique uh, thing that you did. (laughs) Uh, Last year, we had some controversial rule changes, such as the Kasuf rule. What was that, and and is it still in place for this year? It looks like it has returned. We all know what Will Kasuf did in 2016, you know, basically, you know, discussing your hand. It didn't seem to be as big an issue, you know, last year, but you never know. I mean, if Will has another deep run or something, you know, it could come back into play. 
we sort of see with the WSP, like if something happens that gets kind of big, then they sort of make a rule the next year to sort of try to squash that, I guess. Yeah, it does always seem to be an individual incident that provokes this type of thing. I remember Havad Khan, obviously, way back, what was that, like 10 or 12 years ago? And then obviously William a couple of years ago. It does always make it seem like maybe the TV coverage or, or what gets covered in the event does have maybe added import or influence into how the TDs set up these rules or, or, or maybe... I guess with half an eye on making the game more presentable with the TV cameras around. What do you think, Dara? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense for sure. Uh, there was plenty of complaining about last year's Player of the Year formula with this point system, which effectively rewarded serial min cashers. I believe that's been looked at and revised to something resembling how they scored the WSOP circuit leaderboard. What exactly would that mean in practice? It's basically award people who basically win or go very deep in tournaments. Last year, min caching in a lot of events would rack up a lot of points, and we saw that with Chris Ferguson. You know, he cashed over 20 times in Vegas and Rosendahl. Yeah, the whole leaderboard thing is always interesting. I mean, different leaderboards, formulas encourage different behavior. And last year, it seemed to me that they were just trying to encourage people to play as many events as possible if they wanted to chase the leaderboard. I mean, you've been involved with Pocket Fives as well down the years, and they have a very top-heavy leaderboard in the sense that it, it, does, it does really reward, as you say, the people who go deep in a lot of tournaments. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, when I was working at Bluff Magazine, we did WSP year for a couple of years, and we tried to weigh it, make it a little more even for everyone. It may not have been perfect, but it's kind of tough because you you, know, you sort of have to weigh the the lower buy-in events that are going to have the huge fields with the smaller fields and the bigger buy-ins, and it's it's a very delicate balance. And you know, last year it didn't really work out that well. You know, we'll see how it plays out this year. Well, finally, Kevin, uh, what can we expect by way of TV and live stream coverage at this year's series? Okay, so uh, last week, PokerGo announced their uh, streaming schedule for the 2018 WSP, which is, uh, fortunately, there was, a, there was a lot of negative comments about basically the lack of non-hold'em events that people were hoping for the 50K. Players' Championship, they were hoping for, you know, 10K, Omaha 8, things like that. But this year, they listened to the people, fortunately, so I don't have to hear them on Twitter. <laughs> and it's going to be a lot more They're doing 16 events for final tables and, you know, including the 10K, a lot of the 10K championship events a few of the 1500 events, uh, 50K Players Championship. And of course, they will be doing wall-to-wall coverage with ESPN, the ESPN family of networks, for the main event with coverage from day 1A, which is definitely uh, great for everyone to, to see the tournament play out from start to finish online and um, they, they can watch from the comfort of their own home. But I think there's going to be a bunch of free coverage this year with, with more final tables. I'll also make a lot of people not tweet at, at the WCP account. <laughs> so, so basically this interview is just one long plea from Kevin Matt. Don't tweet him, he gets too many tweets. It's. I mean, I don't mind... I. To be honest, I don't mind the tweets. I don't mind the number of tweets. It's the number of tweets about the same thing that's been answered already. That's that's the thing that's always been. <laughs> I mean, I've sort of I've tolerated it, and I don't mind it that much. It's, it's sort of like you know, I'm happy to answer the question. This will be my third year right, you know, managing the WSP Twitter account, and I know what I'm getting into. I mean, Dara certainly tell you about the various issues that happen to WSP, like the bathrooms and the cards and a bunch of other things. And uh, hopefully, hopefully the urinals have been fixed. <laughs> I, I, got yeah, that was a, I mean, now, see, David, see, you, you have never experienced this. You've no. never experienced issues with the bathroom lines yeah. or the food or various things like that. I mean, hopefully, you know, there's supposed to be some improvements in the food this year with the WSP Cafe. That's another new thing. There's going to be some outdoor seating. There's going to be some USB charging stations in the WSP Cafe area, which I think means there's not going to be playing in the Miranda room. 
So that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, that's re- that's really nice. I have tried to prepare David, and I warned him about the bathrooms. So he is he's in the gym every day now, trying to get in shape so he can fight his way to the bathrooms as quickly as possible at the breaks. Yeah. Um, one thing I did last year as well was I tried to do a daily Facebook Live video just to give people a taste of what the different experiences were. This year, I reckon my Facebook Live would be almost like Apocalypse Now, where David starts all chipper and really, really happy to be there. And by the end, he's like Marlon Brando. The horror. <laughs> the horror. Well, exactly. well you'll be, Kevin. You'll be 100 deep in line in the bathroom and you really got to go. And you'll be you'll basically <laughs> doing your thing. Maybe you'll maybe outside or something. I don't know. Yeah, I, re- I reckon Everybody I could clear the queue pretty clear quickly if I started trusting. Exactly. You do that and then everyone will leave. Yeah. <laughs> like, right, we're out of here. That's right. Exactly. Well, Kevin, it has been a pleasure catching up with you as always. And uh, I hope to see you for maybe a dance off out there. That would be nice. <laughs> I'm counting down the days, David. I look forward to seeing you in person. Take care, Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> We're joined now by UKIPT Galway final tablist and one of the most popular poker streamers on the net. He's one half of Spraggy and Finton. I put it in that order on purpose. Ben Spraggs, welcome to the show. Hello, nice to be here. Pleasure. UKIPT Galway final tablist. It's quite the honour, isn't it? From what, five years ago now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, normally Dave does his best to do these barnstorming intros. So um, yeah, that might be the weakest ever. Yeah, the, well, there's not really a lot to hype up, I guess, but I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> well, Ben, you graduated college in 2012 with a degree in journalism, film and media. Pretty clear that you have an eye for what works visually and in terms of presentation. You make streaming look pretty easy. And when I watch your streams, I always think of uh, like a disc jockey or maybe a Chris Evans type character, someone who has a real grasp of making entertaining content at the risk of pulling back the curtain slightly is that a natural flair or is there a lot of preparation and deliberate planning um it can be difficult sometimes to get a little bogged down with the software because for example last night we were casting a a series of final tables and you've got to make sure that you've got the lobby on display because people want to see payouts uh and like positions of players you've got to make sure you've got the right table in you don't miss any action so if i'm streaming my own tables i'm hotkeyed on about six different tables at the same time and if i have action in a hand i've got to make sure the audience is watching the correct table right because there's nothing worse than me talking about a hand and they don't see it and likewise with a final table uh there's nothing worse than missing the action so there's a little bit behind it um but I appreciate the compliment that you you feel like it's it's kind of a smooth viewing experience because I think the best stream is when the audience is kind of unaware that any of that is going on because like, they don't need to be bothered with me fussing around and pulling things up. Do you know what, you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, I think that that if the more seamless that feels, uh, the better the channel flows, I suppose. Yeah, it's almost like you're being the producer as well and you're sort of the the, the man pressing the buttons behind the scenes. It's it's, it's nifty. Yeah, well, there's a lot going into it because. Obviously, there's a certain focus that comes with playing poker. Um, and then you've got the added focus of making sure you've all your tables on display. Then you're also commentating over the poker and talking. You're also reading the chat. And if you miss someone's question, they're going to let you know about it. So it's it's a lot that goes into it, for sure. The first time we met you was at the, that famous uh, big UKIPT Galway in 2013, uh, where you came sixth, which was the same one that our good friend Dara Davy was fourth in. Having only been playing full-time for a year or so, how much did that 30k score mean to you at the time? Yeah, that that was a, that was a lot for me. It was um, my first, probably my only big live score. I, I never really played live poker. I only played because I was in a Skype study group. And it was one of those where we'd all met online and we'd be talking online for 
year, maybe more uh, at that point, like a couple of years. And we decided to have like a meetup. Well, where better place to have a meetup than go to a UKBT and everybody plays. So that was one of my first experiences of like a proper live event. Like, And I was grinding, I think, 50 cent a dollar or a little bit of $1, $2 at the time. So it was massive. And I'd, I'd only just kind of started playing full time. So a 30k score at that point was was huge. I think actually Dara knocked me out of that tournament from from what I recall. I wasn't going to mention it, but yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> he actually seems, I play a little bit with him online or uh, or did not so long ago. He seems to knock me out of pretty much everything I play if, if I'm playing against him. He, is that is that the year he won uh, UKPT Player of the Year? Uh, I don't remember, to be honest. Um, that was that season. There was a was, UKPT that was season that went on for about three and a half years. It might have been that season, yeah. That might have actually been the start of it. Well, Ben, I think I'm right in saying that your streaming career took off with a bankroll challenge. Um, our fellow Unibet ambassador, Espen Jorstad, did a similar thing. And I know it was a great way to goal-orient his audience, give his streams a sort of a narrative drive. It was also a great way of putting yourself in the shop window. Uh, can you talk to us about the challenge and how it went down and how maybe it got you a bit more attention than you first realized it would? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I finished playing full time because I used to play heads up cash games. And obviously that was a, a sort of a lake that dried up, if you will. So my plan was to not play poker anymore. Um, I had always had an interest in Twitch and I wanted to stream on Twitch. I love computer games because I'm, I'm just a huge nerd, really. Um, but nobody wanted to watch me play Counter-Strike or anything like that because I'm terrible. So I thought... What am I okay at? I'll play poker, but I didn't want to play for high stakes. So I started with $100, um, played two cent, five cent cash games with $100. And I think what you mentioned about having a narrative for my stream has certainly been one of the reasons why it's grown so much because there are people who've been watching for more than two years now and remember me starting out with $100. Now we're up to like $33,000 or around that sort of mark. So it's kind of fun for everyone in the channel to have seen that progression where at the back end of 2016, we were sitting with $100 and now we're firing, you know, 215s every day, 109s every day. Partnership with one of my favorite people, Finton Hand, has been quite the whirlwind bromance. How did it come to be and how would you describe working with Finton? How, how long have we got for this interview? <laughs> how would I describe working with Finton? My word. Um, so it came about where we were both streaming quite late, long hours, late hours, and we just got to chatting about streaming as you do and, uh, you know, our experiences on Twitch. And it just became more and more of a thing where we'd stay up and just chat away eventually we decided hey why don't we you know we both have an audience why don't we record these conversations uh and make some sort of podcast um unlike you guys we lasted uh seven episodes that's uh we gave it quite a good crack <laughs> but i think from doing those podcasts together uh was when obviously we were approached to start streaming together and we've been doing that for the last crikey me coming up a year now um, Finton's obviously you you guys know Finton. He's uh, he's a lot of fun. He's very funny, um, very down to earth. Very uh, he's hard work too. Now, Spraggy, we know that. Um, he has his moments. He's not he's not um, no Brian M and M's in the bowl type diva, but he is. <laughs> if if Finton doesn't want to do something, he's going to let you know pretty quickly. Or if Finton is like he's very straightforward. He's very to the point. But I almost like that because I don't like it when people say they're going to do something and they're not really keen, but they like, they go along with it or, but Finton's just, um, direct, um, all the time. So if you say, Hey, why don't we do this? He's just like, no, not doing that. 
which which is great because then you know exactly where you stand. I think that's why we have such a relatively easy working relationship because both of us are just very clear with uh, what we will and won't put up with. Yeah, I think you've got very good chemistry as well on Instagram and vlogs and stuff like that. He's like the guy who's pulling the camera everywhere and you're like the guy, get that camera out of my face. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he did a, the daily vlog and uh, every time we've been to a live event and he tried, I, I hate that stuff. Like I would never, I would never, Ah, I would never be vlogging or anything like that, but I, I know uh, Finton likes it and more importantly, the audience likes it. So there's a little bit of playing up with that. You know, I, I, I kind of, I get it. I know that he wants to be on Instagram, but I also, I take joy in being miserable, I think. So it just gives me a good outlet to, to moan and, and come across as a curmudgeon, I suppose. Well, it certainly seems like Finton's come a long way from the man who told us all that we had to put our phones in a basket um, when we were having dinner with Kevin Colleen on the night of his UKIPT win five years ago, he wouldn't let any of us even like go to social media. So uh, it does seem like a lot to change since those days. Anyway, a photograph taken by PokerStars ideation manager Christine Mashman went viral last week when she stumbled into, I think, what was the first meeting between Ant and Dex since their partnership broke up when Ant went into rehab. If Finn and Spraggy broke up, uh, which of you you think would be the most likely to have caused it by going off the rails? Um, which... By the way, I don't know if that was deliberate, Dave, but that was uh, the name of our now defunct podcast off the rails. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm I, all over I, this, man. I appreciate the plug. Um, um, who would who would be going off the rails? I don't know. Finton's kind of grounded. Um, uh, he has he has Hannah to keep him in line. Um, I think I would go off the rails, but it wouldn't be public. I very rarely leave my house, so if any sort of breakdown, you just wouldn't hear from me <laughs> for like six months. I'd be sat here with Domino's Pizza Boxes playing Dota 2. It wouldn't be like a full-on blow-up. It wouldn't be like um, a Charlie Sheen type. Um, you remember the guy who did Coney 2012 and they found him naked in the street? Like, it wouldn't be that type of off-the-rails. It would be a lot more low-key, but um, I certainly think I have something like that in me. For sure, sure. <laughs> Hopefully you wouldn't have to suffer the indignity of Christine Mashman come take a selfie with you. The- <laughs> well, that, that, that might be the worst end of all. Having seen the numbers recently that Lex and Tonka have posted on Twitch, it's unquestionable that it seems now that poker could potentially reach a tipping point uh, and, and spill over into the mainstream. Do you think that is likely to happen? And do you think you could be part of that happening? Absolutely. And uh, I would I would like to hope I could be a part of it. Yeah. Um I believe Lex's peak viewers during the scoop run were about 18,000. I think Tonka was very close to that yesterday, which is just unfathomable for a poker stream. Um, those guys are averaging around four or 5,000. Uh, Lex sometimes is, is hitting, you know, um, over 10K during a lot of his scoop streams. For me, at the moment, on a good day, if it's a clear directory helps a lot. Like if none of those guys are on, I'm going to hit like two and a half. I've been up to like 4K. But compared to last year, I'd be lucky to hit 1K on an empty directory. So my channel's certainly growing, but the, the growth of poker in general is is what's inspiring to me because you have a huge streamer like Dr. Disrespect Live. I don't know your audience is familiar with Twitch or not, but he's a, a video game streamer who's one of the biggest on the platform. And Lex was actually beating him out for viewers the other day uh, when he hit nearly 20,000. And I think for poker to be showcased um, on that platform to such a, a wide and potentially new audience is just, it's incredible. Uh, you've been branching more into commentary of late, which I guess is a natural enough progression for a streamer. Yourself and Fenton were in Monte Carlo recently working alongside commentary boot veteran James Hartigan, who we're hoping to have on the show soon. What did you learn from working with James and what ingredient do you think he can bring to live streams that might be missing? 
I think in terms of learning from James Hartigan, it's not until you get into that situation with him where you realize just how good he is at his job. Um, you spoke earlier about being able to control OBS and make sure everything runs smoothly. And obviously, um, when you're commentating at a, an EPT or something like that, there's, there's all the information there for you. But James is so smooth and so fluid with everything he does. And he's always hitting cues. If chip counts come up, he's nailing them as soon you know, he's getting that countdown and he's just on it every single time. So in terms of my experience there, I think that's helped a lot with the flow of my broadcast when I'm broadcasting final tables on Twitch, just making sure everyone has the information and it's delivered in a, a clean manner. For me and Finton at those, um, those gigs, I think now that we're more Twitch centric, I think we engage with the chat a lot more than previously uh, at, at these sort of events. So it's kind of, I hate to use such a stupid word, but like Twitchifying the broadcast, making it more fun, making it more engaging, just having kind of been a little bit silly at times when there's not important hands going on, but just injecting some humor, loosening up a bit because James is a great broadcaster, uh, but he's obviously new to Twitch. So I think with his broadcasting skills and with our knowledge of Twitch, knowledge of the platform, combining those, I think that broadcast is, is only going to get better. Yeah, I did some commentary with um, Parik Parkinson on the Irish Open when Finton final tabled it and it got much bigger numbers than it expected. And I think a lot of that was down to Finton having a captive audience on Twitch, which certainly took the producers of, of the live stream by surprise. Uh, because Twitch is so new, I think they do kind of need people from that world to who, who understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got some really good people um, working with us now at Pokestars who like they just know they know the platform. And I know you guys are doing the same thing on uh, with Unibet, right? In that you're with, I know, Hotted. Um, Alan, who, who streams video games and has for years and years. And I think kind of our two worlds meeting, the poker world and the Twitch world, and sort of people from both ends coming together to put out great content. I think it's just, it's great. Yeah, it certainly does seem to be where the world is going, all right. About a year ago, uh, we talked about this only, only a moment ago, of course. Uh, about a year ago, you guys did that podcast called Off the Rails, uh, which was, I think, fair to say, half poker, half you guys shooting the breeze about your other interests. Um, why did it stop first and foremost? And is there any chance we'll see something like that again? I had a lot of fun making that with Finton. It was really, as I said, because we were just talking so much nonsense, we thought we may as well put it out there because I'm sure with our audiences, there'll be someone to watch it. It was originally we planned to do it for a long time, but it was about the time where we were approached to do the dual stream. And we talked so much nonsense for six, seven hours a day. We just didn't feel like it warranted another half an hour uh, up on YouTube of us. Just, I mean, we talked about all sorts of stuff on there, like ice cream van sales, like how do they make money? The guy that got thrown off the plane, just, you know, topical stuff, stupid stuff. And our broadcast on Twitch is still like half poker and then half just inane. Uh, am I allowed to swear? Am I allowed to say bullshit? Because that's what it is. Um, so yeah, um, it came to an end because we just spend so much time together anyway. It's not really necessary. We kind of do like a live podcast seven hours uh, a day. In terms of if we ever do it again, I don't know. If, if we stop doing the dual streams at some point down the road, 
I would not want that to be the end of me and Finton working together. So if it meant that that's how we put out content, uh, I'd love to do something like that with him again. On the topic of poker strategy, there's obviously a lot of content out there on the market at the moment. Um, my satellite strategy video sold way better than I expected. So I was actually considering creating one for bounties. But then I saw your tweet about how you had entered that market. So I, I figured I couldn't compete. Would you care to tell us about your bounty strategy advice? Leave it alone, Dara. Already <laughs> solved. Already solved. I'm well on top of it. I, I don't know what it is about bounty builders, PKOs, and the thing. I think it's because I come from a cash game background, and I always made money playing cash games, that if someone offers a bounty up to me in a tournament, I just immediately start thinking of, I'm on stream, and I'm like, well, you know, you could be doing, I, I already know in my mind, I'm calling. That's my strategy. There's no strategy to it. It's someone's like, someone waves that $25 bounty in my face. I'm like, well, you know, I, I am suited. So, um, <laughs> yeah. and then people do crazy things in bounty tournaments. That's what I say. Then I'm all in. And all of a sudden I'm that guy. But I don't know. It's just that instant gratification, that instant winner. I can't, I can't turn it down. I guess I'm a degenerate in that sense. <laughs> well, finally, Spraggy, a few years ago, I was on commentary for, I guess, what was the most famous slow roll in recent history when Dunnock OD was slow rolled by Andreas Gann when Gann had the nuts on the Irish Open final table and then subsequently of course OD got there. Uh, your partner in crime Fitton has become your partner in crime Fitton has become somewhat infamous for his epic slow rolls. The one versus Jamie Staples perhaps the most special. Uh, I must admit I do enjoy a good slow roll in the right context. What are your views on it? I enjoy it in the right context for sure. I think that the slow roll of Jamie was hilarious but it's fine because Jamie gets streaming. He gets that that's just like, it's hilarious content. And uh, it probably does him more good than it does harm because it gets shared and, you know, people see him and Finton having fun on stream. It's whatever. Um, I, for some reason, have just started getting slow rolled all the time online. I don't know if it's because people know I'm streaming on Twitch and they, they do it because they want to, you know, rush to the stream and then see how pissed off I get when they do it. Or I assume that is it, yeah. I honestly, it, it must be, um, or whether it's because I'm like team pro and people are like, fuck this guy or whatever. But the last two weeks, I've just been getting slow rolled out of my mind. Um, so I try not to give that reaction on stream because I don't want to encourage it because it does secretly piss me off. But I, I try <laughs> not to let on. Um, but Finton's a real rotter for it. If the glee in his face when there's an opportunity to slow roll is something else. Um, he actually slow rolled me in a PLO tournament we played quite some time back and i don't know the first thing about plo um i can barely count to four but i i was all in and he he actually left like a hundred chips behind just so that he could time bank call me uh with whatever like it's just it's just, just i was all in anyway like whatever and it's just he just takes such pride in it it's it's funny and pathetic in equal measure <laughs> where do you stand on this one Dara? yeah i mean i think these things are kind of arbitrary what's regarded as socially acceptable and what isn't and certainly slow roll used to be the worst and now it seems people think it's funny i mean i, I just kind of worry that we're getting to the stage now where every single pot is going to be slow rolled and the game is going to slow down um <laughs> i got slow rolled by my boss for like a 700 quid pot the other day he thought it was hilarious ouch it is um i don't know it's something i wouldn't want it encouraged because it is kind of obnoxious i think between the problem is between streamers and that it's fine or between friends if you know the person at the table it's fine um but then if people see that on twitch and they think that's a funny thing to do then it just becomes more commonplace i think it's a bit of a problem. yeah that's exactly my problem i think among people who know each other very well then obviously it's funny but i think people watching from the outside will just think it's funny period and they won't necessarily get the context and then they start doing it and suddenly before we know it everybody's slow rolling everybody yeah and that would definitely suck so i don't know i, I don't want to encourage it really but it is funny. Actually, one other thing which just occurred to me, uh, uh, Doug Polk had, had some sort of 
uh, humorous poke at yourself and Fintan. Were you aware of that and, uh, and what did you think of it? I actually think a lot of Doug's stuff is, is really funny, but he puts out so much content or, or was at least. I don't tend to catch all of it. Um, what, what, what was the... What was the gag? I think the general thrust was he was trying to make out like... Um, oh, right. So like we're a little low profile to be... Type of thing. I get that a lot. I get I get a lot of like... Um, because obviously I'm new to tournaments. So I have decent results in cash games from, you know, years gone by for like four or five years or whatever. Because I'm new to tournaments, what happens is people jump on Sharkscope. And I, I had a name change when I joined Team Pro because they wanted me to be Spraggy or whatever. And so my Sharkscope's up like... 11 grand 12 grand something like this um so all the time i get who is this guy i've never heard of him how come he's up 12 grand on shot scope and he's team pro uh so and so is up 400k and he's not team pro or this guy is like a big name he's not team pro but i think that speaks more to people's ignorance of how that is changing like poker uh is changing in terms of who has a better relationship with their audience because I, I'm, I'm a relative nobody in poker, right? Like I, I just played a little few cash games through there. Now I play very small stake tournament schedule, but I'm out there every day engaging with real poker fans. They talk to me. I talk to them. I have a community of, well, I have 30 something thousand followers on Twitch where all those people can come to me and they say, Hey, Sprague, how'd you play this hand? And I try and get back to them as best I can. And we talk every day in the chat. So in terms of being an ambassador for poker, I feel like as Twitch streamers, we have such a, a closer link to the, the poker community um, of people who play every day and play recreationally every day. We have such a better link to those people than some guy who plays high rollers um, and just, you know, he's, he doesn't, they don't engage with their audiences as closely as we do. And, and rightfully so, because that's, that's not their game, right? They're there to, to play the high rollers and play at the highest level. Whereas, whereas we're not, we're, we're sort of, we're poker players, but we're, we're community sort of, members ourselves i guess yeah that makes a lot of sense we had barry carter on the show last season and he spoke very eloquently in exactly the same terms as you there uh, highlighted the impact that people like tonka have had um yourself and finton obviously exactly the same basically fostering a sort of uh, almost in the venn diagram somewhere between entertainment uh, ambassador and customer service too at some level you know that, that that constant contact with you provides something great for the company you work for and you know Ben I have to say to wrap up here you know you, you do it better than most and I do really enjoy watching your streams and I, long may they continue I, I hope yourself and Finton go from strength to strength thank you very much I really appreciate that and uh, I appreciate you guys having me on and you, I'll be streaming for the foreseeable future thanks Brady great, great great thank you very much <laughs> It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello and welcome to the news. An interesting turn of events has occurred in the WPT who have recently announced that they will be having delayed final tables for some of their major events in season 17. Now this is coming shortly after the World Series of Poker has ceased delaying the final table of the World Series of Poker main event. Now personally I've got mixed feelings about this. When it came to the World Series main event I felt the flow of the game was interrupted and the final tableists were also pressured into surrendering X percentage of their winnings in order to pay for top class coaches. On the other hand, if it makes for good TV coverage, that's obviously great for the game. I feel like if they're gonna produce really good content for TV, then I think that's gonna be overall plus EV for poker. Sticking with the WPT theme, Matt Waxman has managed to win the Tournament of Champions. Waxman defeated Matt Asimbalas heads up to win the second biggest cash of his career. He scored $463,000 for his win. 
Now, in addition to his prize money, now this included 50k added to first place by the WPT, Waxman earned a host of other prizes. He won himself a luxurious Hublot watch and a Jet Smarter membership for private flights valued at $50,000. Not a bad result for him. Uh, shout out here to Matt Symbolas and Darren Elias, who secured second and third place respectfully uh, for $265,000 and $177,000. Over to the Super High Roller Bowl, and I'm going to sum this up by quoting Neil Farrell's uh, tweet. Massive day in my <laughs> career today. The $300,000 buy-in Super High Roller Bowl starts today, across at the Aria, whilst I play day two of this Venetian $600 event. Watch on Adbogago using my sign-up code, why is this happening, for 10% off. And then in brackets, not an actual offer, slash code. Vamos! So hopefully uh, Neil did good in the $600 event. David, I believe you know what's happening in that so far. Yeah, well, at the time of recording, we've only seen one day of play so far. Probably the most interesting table draw there was the fact that to the immediate left of Daniel Legrano was Doug Polk, who couldn't resist, of course, back-to-back uh, -back <laughs> years, I think, now, whipping out a More Rake is Better trolley t-shirt. Uh, you know, unveiled that, I think, after a level or two. And, uh, you know, much, much to the hilarity of the Twitterverse and everybody else watching uh, on Poker <laughs> Go. Um, but it's got to be said, Negreanu did seem all business. Now, he was a bit of a card rack all day. I watched at least sort of six hours of play. I didn't quite catch the end, although I see he finished with 1.6 million, almost double that of second place Jason Kuhn. So he's in the box seat for a final table run you got to say, on the flip side, Polk is eliminated. While those two were battling, it was very clear that Negreanu just didn't want to engage Polk, maybe trying to get under his skin a little. But Negreanu got the benefit of winning pretty much all the pots between the two players and doing a few sort of eye rolls in Polk's direction when he made a sort of hero GTO call in a spot where maybe Negreanu had him pegged as someone who would call an overbet. Yeah, interesting stuff there. Speaking of Poker Go, they've announced a partnership with Twitch TV and they are going to be live streaming 31 of the tournaments from the World Series of Poker this summer. Uh, David Tuckman will be the lead commentator for Twitch.tv for these events, so I look forward to seeing some content from there. Yeah, it's got to be said, great content from David and the team over the last few years. Uh, we recorded an interview with Kev Matt actually a little bit before this was announced. So really happy to see that uh, there's a little bit more info out there now about how coverage is going to be uh, supplied by the WSOP this year. And obviously for those staying at home, it's always great to be able to, to watch your favourite players or if you have a pal or someone you've staked, go deep to get to watch their final table and uh, rail your investment. Absolutely. Over to the Unibet world now, and the Unibet online series has just started with a plethora of online events, culminating in a €100,000 guaranteed event on the 10th of May. Uh, there will be events every day for the next two weeks, catering to all stakes, uh, from the nanos for the buy-ins leading up to a dollar, all the way up to the €100 stakes. Sorry, Ian, I've got to ask, did you say there's a what of events? A, a plethora? A plethora of events. <laughs> a plethora of events. I think the word is plethora, and uh, I think the word plethora might have something to do with the, the female anatomy. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like something that, you know, you might have got, you know, an infection in. Something that needs a cream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got an itchy plethora. No, none of that at the Unibet Online series. No, no, no infections. 
But definitely a plethora of events. Definitely a plethora of events. Not just that though, there are satellites running on the Unibet client now for the Unibet Open in Bucharest starting at the very beginning of August. Not only that, but the Unibet UK tour is coming to Glasgow and satellites are available for that as well. I wouldn't say there's a plethora of satellites for them, but there are a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I, I am very much looking forward to Bucharest. I'm also looking forward to going to Belgium. The Belgian Poker Championships are sponsored by Unibet. And I think maybe regional specific, there are satellites for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be going to that too. I can't wait for that. All right. Well, that's the news. Thank you very much, everybody. Take care. Zini. For our strategy segment this week, I want to take a close on what I assume is going to be a painful look at a hand from my Vendetta in Valletta heads-up grudge match with our news clown Ian Simpson. Dara, you railed the match. Any overall observations before we get into the hand? Yeah, I railed the entire match. Your strategy, which I thought made perfect sense, at least at the start, was to play a very small ball style. You definitely had the better of it in the early action when you were deep in both matches the first match and the second match you seem to be getting the upper hand Ian came in with the a strategy to sort of counteract that of bloating pots depolarizing his three betting range pre-flop and basically playing uh, big pots both in and out of position and that strategy really came into its own as the stacks got shallower yeah I think that's fair to say both games took on a sort of a similar pattern as you say I took a small lead and then he sort of pinged it back uh, in game one which is the Uh, hand in question today Uh, that was probably the most significant hand because I guess I had an opportunity to to put him away Uh, at this point I want to bring in the man who did all the grunt work actually with P.O. Salver while Dara and I were busy ambassadoring which essentially means me thrusting my hips in the direction of a colleague while Dara clumsily films it Uh, that man is of course last season's guest Samir Singh Sammy welcome back to your second favorite podcast that's funny Uh, (laughs) it's uh it's great to be back guys welcome back Sammy well, Sammy, you did do the grunt work and, I, and we appreciate it. So as the streets go on and as the game tree gets more complex, I'm sure you're going to come into your own maybe on the turn in particular. But I'm going to call the action anyway as is. The hand is from game one in the best of three and I have roughly a two to one chip lead at this point. Playing 30 big blinds effective, I min raise the button to 1200 with 7-8 suited, pretty standard. Ian, three bets to 3100. And I call, I I guess already I'm going to toss it over to Dara. I do feel like this stuff is fairly easy. I'm sure most people would do the same thing, but it's worth still analysing. Yeah, you open, which is obviously standard open. He he three bets. His sizing is really small, which is kind of curious because you can never fold anything now. You obviously have a fairly easy call. This was early in the match, so we hadn't really figured out yet what his three betting strategy was. The only thing that was obvious to us was that he was three betting a lot more than we would expect. So therefore he was three betting much wider. I'd like to say Dara that perhaps we could consider instead of opening uh, min raising, we could consider just a limp. And I think that when you're sort of 20 to 25 big blinds deep, I would almost say that's a superior overall strategy because you're in position, you can play pretty much your entire range, which is like close to 100%. Whereas if you start min-raising, you'll get jammed on uh, a fair bit with small pairs, ASX, etc. And even 30 big blinds, I, I'd suggest, especially if you think you are, are doing quite well post-flop and you want to keep the pot small and play small ball, uh, min, just calling is actually fine because a hand like 7-8 suited plays beautifully in position. Whereas if you sort of min-raise and now get jammed on it, say 30 big blinds deep you're not going to call and you know he could have twos threes fours fives ace five and you're sort of getting blown off very good equity so i i almost prefer a sort of 
fairly sort of limp, overall limping strategy versus a min-raise strategy as we get closer to 25 big blinds. Now, 30 big blinds, I think it's still okay to min-raise. Uh, and deeper for sure, min raise is fine. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, in retrospect, I would prefer actually switching to a limping strategy, even at 30 big blinds, given how much right. Ian was three betting. Anyway, we head to the flop, 6200 in the pot, and uh, the flop comes down uh, pretty coordinated, 985. There's two clubs on this board. I don't have club. Ian leads out for 2400. Uh, a curiously small bet on this board texture, although I do know from talking to you, Dara, and looking at some PO solutions that PO does seem braver. Uh, with these smaller bets on quite like low textured boards, maybe more so than we instinctively as humans have been thinking about playing these hands in the last few years. I, at that point, have actually got two decent decisions that I can make. I think folding's out of the question, of course. I flopped a second pair with a gooder and a backdoor. So with shove or call, I opt for call. Now, I think I already sort of regret this, but it's an interesting one to already talk about. Yeah, when the flop came down, my initial thinking was this is a board that Ian shouldn't have hit very much. We didn't know at the time that he he had depolarized his three betting range and therefore could very well have hit this board. He could have certain midly cards that people would normally uh, call rather than three bet. Um, but also physically, just from looking at Ian, I actually had a very strong sense that he'd missed the board. Um, so I was pretty sure that he would that that he was just taking a stab. Whether to raise or to shove with your hand, I mean, obviously there are, there are benefits to both. We can deny equity to sort of you know two overcards that have pretty good equity on on this board. We also don't have a club, so um, we're not going to feel good if a club rolls off on the turn. A lot of his hands will pick up equity, but then calling keeps his range wider and might encourage him to keep bluffing. Um, so yeah, I can I can see merits for both. Yeah, this is actually quite a close spot on the flop, and I, I think it's an interesting one because our instinct sort of, at least my instinct was, well, you know, I just prefer to call here. But as Dara says, you're denying a lot of equity to hands which just can't continue versus your shove, and this it's a fairly decent pot already out there given effective stacks, and taking it down is is a win, and. I th I thought that raising can't be that bad, and when we ran it in Pio, actually it was sort of dead even, and you can do either, uh, and so shoving is absolutely fine. And in fact, it, it Pio prefers shoving when you have uh, no backdoor. So when you have just seven eight uh, of say diamonds, I think which is your exact hand, it's fine to just shove, and it shoves it more often than it just calls it. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that might be the outcome because obviously this, this hand was the most talked about hand of the heads up and a lot of the ambassadors discussed it and it kind of fell 50-50. Some people felt, oh, no, no, he has to call and other people were like, oh, no, 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 he has to shove. And people seemed to have, be very cut and white in, on this issue. And in general, when good players uh, split on something like that, it actually means it's it's super close and, and that both options are fine. Well, we do go to the turn, obviously. I, I make the call and... The pot is now 11,000. Ian has 12.5k back, and we see the four of clubs. Another club, which obviously brings the flush home, although I don't know if there's a huge amount of suited hands that Ian's going to have in this spot. I guess he could have, like, over over cards with the clubs. I guess he could have ace-king, ace-queen. Although, as you say, with the depolarization of his range, maybe he's even more likely to have made flushes now as well. But much more likely to either have... An overpair with a club and overpair without a club as his value shoves when he just decides to go for it, which he does. That was pretty much my logic on it. Also trying to work out how often he would just do it with a naked 
ace of clubs or king of clubs in his hand and that was sort of how I was weighing it up now I think unfortunately in game I weighed it up pretty incorrectly you could make an argument for saying that the fact that another club came gave him more turn shoves in his bluffing range therefore making it more compelling for me to snap off with a hand that could be I don't know 65-70% which is obviously a great result given I only need to be about what 35 yeah again I was watching from the side as, as you were in the tank I was trying to work out what kind of hand you had that was close in this spot when you folded Ian kind of looked cheekily over to the side and showed me his cards when I found out your hand afterwards I was really surprised that you had made the fold it seemed like a like a snap call to me I have to admit with your pair and your gut shot and so many bluffs in his range I think even against a really balanced player this would be a call against somebody like Ian I think would bluff wider would literally bluff any hand that had equity like any hand with a club in it gut shot straight draws all those types of hands I think if we're folding this hand we're folding almost all of our hands you don't really get to the turn I don't think with many stronger hands than this hand so yeah for me for me it just it seemed like a fairly I think sadly uh, David I'd have to agree and I actually have evidence of this because Dara sent it to me on messenger and he often sends me hands when he's traveling on tour uh, to run on Pio and I quite enjoy this because he travels more than I do so say he's at the World Series he'd send me a hand and quite often I'm not confident enough to say no that is a call but in this case I said that's a call yeah for sure no you actually said snap call <laughs> okay I did say snap call <laughs> And I, and I think I said snap call because I thought that Ian was three betting pretty wide, which I sort of been given that information. But I think having run it in Pio, I think as Dara mentioned, even if Ian is not, say, being very aggressive or over aggressive, it still is a call. And yeah. I think the fold is just burning money, sadly. Yeah, unfortunately, I do agree with that now in retrospect. At the time... I guess I'll give my sort of logic for how the hand played out. And what I think is very beneficial about revealing this hand and talking it through is the number of people who've come to me saying they would have done the same thing having been told the hand. So I think this is an error that a lot of people make and shouldn't make, and I shouldn't have made it either. When Ian makes the small three bet, and I just felt off the stacks that we were playing, it was a really weird three bet size. I felt like it was probably more value. I thought he's not going to lay me such a good price with such a wide range. Um, I I felt like he was he was he was trying to get more money into the pot with a good hand. Then he makes the small C bet on the flop, which seemed kind of counterintuitive. It seemed kind of brave, if you like. That's a board that obviously hits my range pretty well, and uh, and only really uh, the over pairs or maybe a few of the sets that he might have are really happy with their hand and, and even those hands are somewhat vulnerable i thought ian might have been going again for just like a teasy little try and you know uh, maybe induce me kind of better it just seemed a little too small for me on the face of it and then once i called the turn i thought it was almost like a panic oh shit i better just lock up my equity here and not give him another free card hence the the, the over bet i know it's only a small over bet but uh, I just felt that at the time I just got this worrying feeling he had an overpair with the club much more often and uh, and I and I wasn't in good nick but again obviously that's me getting way too focused on individual hands in his range and not thinking about his range properly I think you're making a sort of error in thinking that a lot of players make to be fair and I mean Doug Polk is always going on about this how you know people think they're being exploited when somebody does something weird and they switch to an exploited strategy which actually ends up exploiting them themselves I, I mean one interesting sort of overall point is which I think uh, people sometimes when they play heads up sort of forget is that we, the, the, the ranges are really wide in play even in three bet spots so it's just basically very hard for players to make hands and second pair is a pretty strong hand and I think for that reason 
when you get to the when you get to the turn as Dara says you don't really have that many better hands and if he's shoving 70% which he should be uh, you just have to call definitely second pair but actually you've got even better than second pair because you've got some other outs as well to the straight and I think this mistake is probably a too big blind uh, sort of mistake which is pretty big and I, I for one regret it because I was hoping that you would uh, have called and won this one and then we'd have seen that dance again in Ian's face which would have been quite spectacular I think. <laughs> uh, and I think we should definitely have a rematch as well which should be, which should be fun but just to continue back on the point that it's very hard for players to have made hands, like we said, on the flop, you can actually just shove this hand and it's perfectly fine. And in equity terms, it's exactly the same as calling. So when you do shove, I was interested to see what is Ian supposed to do with Queen 10? Yeah, Ian had Queen 10 with the club. Exactly. And actually, with the 10 of clubs, Queen 10 is a call. Yeah. So that just sort of shows you that, you know, he's, he's calling all in with just a draw and a back draw, like a, a gut shot, so over cards and uh, a backdoor flush draw. So that was really interesting for me. So so when you get to the turn, uh, and I think David, one good point you really made was about the, 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 the third club coming, because quite often people are scared that this means that the other person has a flush, but there's way fewer flush combos as compared to combos which have one club in them. So if he does have a club, which he did, then he should be battling off because he's picked up more equity. Yeah, I think overall, you know, there's just a, a lot for me, obviously, personally, to learn from this hand. I, I guess I made adjustments and I probably did turn out to an exploitative strategy, which exploited me. Also, just thinking about how Ian played, you know, the one thing we've talked about just there and didn't explain fully was how he decided to take these sort of slam dunk calls, these slam dunk defends and turn them into sort of wonky three bets where I guess he made himself very vulnerable to a four bet. But I think maybe picking up the fact that I was very unlikely to four bet pots because I wanted to keep pots small against him. It sort of freed him up to take the initiative in these situations. Yeah, I think I actually advised you after the game that you needed to start four betting more because he was three betting so much. That was that was the one adjustment I would have made. Overall, I thought you played really well. I mean, I, I'm, Ian unquestionably ran better than you. This, I think, was the only major mistake you made in the entire match. It was a really high quality from both of you. Um, I wasn't surprised that you played well. I, I was. I have to say, genuinely surprised how well Ian played, um, and he did play extremely well. Yeah, I thought his post-flop skills were on show for sure, and I thought he was pretty composed. We often joke about Ian's wild eyes, sort of um, maybe uh, giving away when he's about to do something maniacal, and, and I thought he kept himself in check. And I, I know I did. I thought I like ultimately the, the contest came down to two flips, and he won both of them when we were pretty similarly stacked. Um, but the, yeah, as you say, this was an opportunity for me to sort of put him away with the best hand, having lent on him and got a lead. And, and, and this was certainly a huge turning point for me. Disappointed not to close out uh, this round at least and, and uh, put him under all the pressure. But I got to give him a lot of credit overall. He did play very well. Samir Singh, thank you so much for popping back. I have a feeling we might be doing something like this again with you because your analysis is top drawer and it, it was lovely to get another voice into the commentary booth. Always fun, guys. Thanks, Thanks Amit. We're joined now by the 2013 Heartland Poker Tour Player of the Year. He's a four-time WSOP runner-up and three-time WSOP circuit ring winner. With over 3.5 million in live winnings, he has just recently reached the milestone of 300 live caches, 59 of which were at the WSOP and over 50 of which were at the WSOP circuit events. He is, of course, Alan the Chainsaw Kessler. Alan, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, by the way, I just, uh, the other day, got my 301st cash. I'm now tied with Phil Helmuth on that number. And you're playing some poker this weekend, so you're almost certainly going to go past him. Yeah, I'm playing a series of 12 events in New Orleans. I'm trying to get around 25 points to try to uh, win a $10,000 seat. Well, good luck with that. Firstly, Alan, you started playing poker in college and you grinded cash games at, I guess, what was the dawn of poker in casinos. For the vast majority of our listeners, that's a world they can't even imagine. Paint us a picture of poker in the 1980s and 90s, if you will. Basically, when I was in college, we were playing home games. We played mostly high-low games. That's why I got into uh, mixed games, mostly. And in the late 80s, early 90s, the casinos opened up in Atlantic City for poker. And our game migrated there. And eventually, we started playing uh, mix. Nobody played stud eight or better at that time. We just played Omaha high-low. But somebody started playing stud eight, and we made it a stud eight, Omaha eight mix. And that game lasted for years and years. We were playing like 100, 200 mix, just those two games at the Taj Mahal. And that lasted basically until the Borgata opened. And once the Borgata opened, the entire poker scene in Atlantic City changed. And the Taj Mahal basically wound up closing because of that. But uh, from those beginnings, one day I decided, you know what, I'm going to play one World Series event. This was in 2001 after playing you know, mixed games in Atlantic City for all these years. It's a $5,000 Omaha 8 championship. So I got up that morning, I flew in an early morning flight, I landed at 10 a.m. in Vegas, and I played in the tournament at noon at Binion's, and Scotty Wynn was at my table, Phil Ivey, who I already knew from Atlantic City, was at my table. Amazing. Uh, a few other people. And it winds up, I cashed in that event. If you look it up, that's like one of my first caches, 2001. Yeah, you transitioned to tournaments in that decade, and I guess you were obviously very good at Omaha 8, because in 2005 you finished second to Todd Bronson in the 2.5K Oh my eight at the WSFP. What are your memories right. from that tournament? Well, basically, before that tournament, I had been playing a lot of Omaha 8, and around 2004, I started playing these no-limit events because most of the uh, venues, they, w- they would have like one Omaha 8 event, but it would be surrounded by no-limit events. So if you look at my hand and mob and my card player or whatever, you'll see around 2004, I have a lot of no-limit caches. But in 2005, I started playing a lot more events at the World Series, and I moved to, actually moved to Las Vegas in 2005. So I was playing almost the full schedule of events. And in that particular event, I just kind of plotted along. And heads up, we were pretty close in chips. And we played for a long, long time. I was really pretty much unknown in 2005. I had like maybe two or three friends in the audience. And he had basically the entire audience, if you can imagine. It's his first chance at a bracelet. Actually, it's his only bracelet. So it was like Doyle was there, Jennifer Harmon, all these people that knew him were all rooting for him, and I had nobody. And we're both really good Omaha 8 players, but whenever I had one side made and a chance to win the pot, he would get half the chips back on the river card. It happened over and over again. And whenever he had the same situation, I would miss on the river, and he would scoop the pot. And that happened multiple times, and eventually he won. But either one of us could have easily won that day. We're both very good Omaha 8 players. So uh, it's... I always tell people it's my fault that Todd Brunson's in the Hall of Fame because if he didn't win that bracelet, <laughs> it's extremely difficult to get in the Hall of Fame without ever winning a bracelet. If you look at like the last 20 years, there's nobody like that. Sure. <laughs> sure. You're obviously much more proficient in mixed games than we are, and it obviously still hurts after all these years. Do you think the nature of the split games actually makes, makes it easier to tilt in those games where you know the, there's more potential for suckouts? No, it's actually it's actually less tilting because you know that if you're if you're going to play solid, like a lot of these players don't know the mixed games that well, 
And if you play solid against people that don't know the games, you're eventually going to get their chips. It's just a matter of how lucky they're going to get. Sure. It's, it's like negative tilting. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, in 2010, you cashed nine times at the WSOP, the most caches of anyone in that series. In fact, this included a 275k score when you were runner-up to Frank Casella in the 10k seven-card stud high-low eight championship, again proving your proficiency at the mixed games. Uh, you've also had two other second-place finishes at the WSOP, pretty agonising. Given how long you've been playing the game, how stoical were you about uh, yet another bracelet near miss? Yeah, I mean, the last one just happened in Europe a few months ago. I was heads up for a, a game that I don't even play that much, TLO bracelet in WSOP Europe. And I was on a very, very good flow. I don't know if you, how to describe it, but there's like a flow to the tournament where you're, everything's going perfectly. Mm-hmm. And the event was being live streamed. And the girl comes over and says, we're going to have to stop the, uh, the heads up bracelet play so we can fix the live stream. The live stream had gone down. So they fix the live stream, and the you know obviously the flow is different. Anyway, I get dealt like a uh, I think it was like a straight flush draw versus a set or something, and uh, the guy basically beat me. But the worst I could have done without them redoing everything was to finish second. So <laughs> you know, that was really really tilting to me because you know everybody's saying, well this is your fourth shot at the bracelet, you're finally going to win it, and now if you check the records, there's nobody in the history of the World Series has finished second four times without winning a bracelet. So not very stoical would be the short answer. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, it took me a while to, to get over that one because that, you know, that one I'm playing against just like some local Czechoslovakian guy that, you know, he, he had like maybe two or three caches in his lifetime. But, you know, he, you know, in PLO, anything can happen. And for me to come in second in that event, I was like eighth or ninth place at the final table. And I just kept hanging around and hanging around. And I finally got heads up and I had the chip lead heads up for a little while, but it, I've had the chip lead heads up a few times, and the other the other one you mentioned the Frank Casella one. The other one was against Brian Rast, and I started his whole career going. He, he won that <laughs> event. Then he decided to play the 50k mix with that money and beat Phil Helmet heads up, and now he now he plays in the super high rollers. So that was in 2011. So those are my four heads ups. As David mentioned at the top, you're the Heartland Poker Tour Player of the Year in 2013. Our European audience probably doesn't know too much about that tour. They have the tagline, Real People, Unreal Money, um, and it was created in 2005 by Greg Lang and our former guest on the show, Todd Anderson, who placed a big emphasis on the television product. How important do you think it is for poker to maintain a TV presence, um, particularly since UIGA's enforcement in 2011? See, the TV is hard for them to do these days because basically when they do the TV, poker TV, they like to advertise poker sites. But in the United States, none of these tours seem to be doing that well on the TV end of it. Like the Heartland uh, has kind of cut back and there is no poker television. Like there's no poker after dark, high stakes poker they used to have on uh, Game Show Network. They have this Poker Night in America. It's on CBS Sports Network, which is a very low end uh, cable network and doesn't have the big draw. And uh, recently they started this Poker Go streaming app, which is very nice. You can watch like uh, past episodes of different TV shows, and they also have some live cash games, like high roller cash games, and they have live coverage of different high roller events. But basically, in the United States, you have to have that Poker Go app or ESPN during the World Series main event. The World Poker Tour, obviously, has been running for like 15 years, but that also has kind of lost its luster because the buy-ins have gone down and people don't recognize the players anymore, like, you know, 
when the buy-ins were big and it was it was like Negrano every week and Doyle Brunson won one and Phil Ivey and Phil Helmuth, it was much more interesting for the TV viewer to watch. But now that they've lowered the buy-in and it's like it's basically a little bit more than like a uh, circuit event buy-in, that you'll turn it on and you won't recognize any of the players playing. And that's a, I think that's a big problem with, with some of these shows. You need like the star power players, which Poker Go figured that out. And then when they have their episodes... It's all the big names like Fedor Holz and Phil Helmuth and Negreanu and Antonio Esfandiari, all the, the big names on the Poker Go. So United States, I think Poker Go has the market wrapped up, but uh, that's basically an internet-only app. Yeah, to be fair, Poker Go's had quite the impact in Europe as well. A lot of people watching their poker that way. Similarly, TV poker in the UK, Ireland, Europe has just kind of all but vanished, really. There's, there's very little of it. Uh, needless to say, that year you won Player of the Year. You were ridiculously consistent, cashing 12 of the 20 events, I believe. Consistently has, to be fair, been a bit of a hallmark of your entire career. Uh, to what personal qualities do you attribute that frangibility and longevity? Well, I do play a lot of events, and they say I have a very nitty style, but I also take advantage of that sometimes, and I make moves on people. But if you look at like people that have played around, say, like 2005 or 2006, there's very few of those people still playing these days. Just like the general grinder types, most of them fell by the wayside. But I have like a, a you know, I have like a, a discipline, and I, I play what I want to play. I play whatever I think is the best event, whatever the best structured event. I like to go places where I can relax. I have a pretty rigid schedule. Like basically, I'm traveling almost the whole year, and I'm very structured on what I pick. And I try to play places where the tournament people, the tournament staff, will listen to me if I make a suggestion. I think that's uh, one of my big things. So I've actually helped improve a lot of the tours. Like if you look at the at the advertising for MSPT Poker, they have the most successful mid-range poker tour. It says right on their advertisement, uh, Chainsaw Approved. <laughs> that's like a terminology for a tournament that's a good value for the player. I also look for groups of tournaments that are not just one event. Like, I don't want to travel somewhere just to play one event. Like, I'm going right here to New Orleans to play, like, 12-event series. So I look for somewhere where I can stay for a few days and play multiple events. And I don't think it's a good idea, like, to travel somewhere just to play one event. I think it's a lot of expense, a lot of hassle, a lot of travel. And then you get there, you play that one event, you bust, and now you have to leave. So... I try to go somewhere where I can play, you know, a series of events. Okay, Alan, so to that nickname, the Chainsaw, where did it come from? Uh, there's some arguments over that, but uh, basically the general uh, consensus is I was on this show called Poker Row Radio. It was run by uh, Barry Greenstein's son, Joe Seabach, years ago, like around 2005 or so. I remember it. It was pretty popular, actually. I don't know why it went under, but Ali Najad was the host. Probably because Joe went yeah. off to squish grapes on a, uh, yeah. in a vineyard. <laughs> Yeah, that was way, way after that. But anyway, <laughs> he was on the show, Gavin Smith, Ali Najad, a few other people. And uh, I would be on the show quite often, and they would call it the Chainsaw Report. And they would always make fun of my playing style and all this. And in 2007, I was playing in Foxwoods, and they were doing a live feed from there. Poker Road used to go, like, they would follow the World Poker Tour around and do the live show from, from there and also from the World Series. So anyway, they were doing the live show. And I had made the final table, and I was actually uh, showing some bluffs. And anyway, they said I was playing like a chainsaw, and they would play like this chainsaw uh, sound effect. And it <laughs> kind of stuck on it. Uh, then, then every time I come on the show, they say the chainsaw is back, and they would they would play the sound effect. <laughs> so, uh, Great stuff. Well, 
Alan, I am someone who is known to make complaints when I'm not happy with tournament structures, rake conditions for the players, maybe even every ruling ever made by Luca Vivaldi, a, a tournament director over this part of the world. My friend and past guest on the show, Ari Engel, is known to be even more of a squeaky wheel. However, in this regard, I would still refer to him as Alan Kessler Light. What's it like being the real deal? Yeah, they. Uh, I, have a, I have a second nickname, it's called Complain Saw. <laughs> But I like to, you know, I like things done the right way, and there's just things that are done so stupidly some places. There was some ridiculous stuff that goes on in these tournaments, and I don't let anything slide. If dealers, whatever, if they make a mistake, but also like structures, like a lot of places will somehow skip from 2,000, 4,000 to 3,000, 6,000, and like I always complain about that. There's not many tournament people I get along with, but the actual ones that I do get along with, I've actually made a lot of uh, success with. Like, if you Google Jack Effel and my name, you'll see, like, uh, I think it was 2016 or 15, they completely revised the limit structures midway through the World Series at the Rio based on my suggestions. The uh, the structure wasn't right, and I had done an interview with Poker News on uh, make, just making, you know, random suggestions. And basically, Jack Effel called me, and he said he read my article in Poker News, and then he went... And changed the structures midway through the World Series. It's never been done in the history of poker in the World Series. But this happened a few years ago. And basically, those structures, slightly modified, are still what they use today. And in fact, I just talked to him two days ago about some other structure stuff that's happening between the circuit events and the World Series. So people actually do listen to me. Like the, the MSPT poker tournament, they were in third or fourth place out of uh, you know the mid-range poker tours. They invited me to one of their events. So I'm playing in the event. And I say to the guy, Brian Molesky, running the event, I say, Brian, this structure is not very good. He said, he said it's not chainsaw approved. I said, no. He said, well, how would you do it differently? So I write down on a piece of paper, just off the top of my head, what I would change. And he said, well, no, we have certain limits we have to get done by Sunday night. I said, use this. It'll finish exactly by Sunday night. So they changed this in 2014. And since then, they've become the number one uh, mid-range poker tour. People love the structure. So even though people say I complain a lot, I've actually uh, gotten a lot of stuff done. The only person that won't change anything is Matt Savage. He's got a, a big ego. And anything that you say to him that you think is wrong, and he does quite a bit wrong that he just won't admit to. But if you ever call him out on anything, he'll just laugh you off. Like, I have an ongoing feud with Matt Savage that he's never, ever admitted being wrong on anything. I never changed anything. <laughs> so the last two examples were he would not admit he was wrong, but he actually got outvoted. I'll give you two quick examples. Number one. He came up with this really ridiculous last card off the deck rule, and he insisted this was the best way to speed up poker and that people should be at their seat and all this. And, like, you'd be talking to the waitress getting a drink, and, you know, the cards are being dealt out, but you're standing right there at your seat. And his rule was if you're not in your seat with the last cards dealt, you have a dead hand. Or you'd be coming back from the restroom, and they're dealing the cards, and you sit down. Obviously, you expect to get a hand. Well, you weren't there on the first card off the deck. You don't get a hand. So anyway, he got voted down on that rule after two years. And then the last one, he insisted I was never going to win this one. I said, your hand-for-hand -hand rules are ridiculous. People who have big stacks are bullying people, and some other people are stalling during the, even during hand-for-hand. -hand, and sometimes you wind up playing two levels on hand-for-hand -for, -hand for no reason. Why not just run a two-minute clock? And he said, that's ridiculous. That'll never happen. Oh, and there you go. That finally, got vote, that finally got voted in this past summer. On the, and he, he got voted out on that one also. For sure. And this attitude of like not that anything slide that you mentioned, 
is that something that sort of poker exacerbated or i mean were you always like that were you like as a kid did you complain about everything uh, that struck you? actually i never did that in any other thing but once you play like hundreds of these tournaments you pretty much get a feel like tournament people say well you're not running the tournament i say yeah but i probably have more live time in tournament venues than you do even the tournament director so i know like if something's obviously wrong like here here's another one that happens a lot like i'll be sitting at a table and somebody will come to take a player for my table right and the hand will be taking a while and they'll switch their mind and they'll go to a different table and i say to the tournament guy do you realize how bad that is and they don't even realize how if a player can affect by stalling that not moving or they can move if they play the hand quickly it gives the player like an option to switch tables there should be a set rule for that which there is but a lot of tournament directors don't go by that like these things if you play hundreds of tournaments and you see these things happen you just get crazy about it it just drives me nuts when that happens but that happens quite a bit actually but i really wasn't like that when growing up it's just after playing hundreds of these tournaments maybe thousands of tournaments you see things that just make your head spin like how could anybody do this it's running a tournament they're that bad well alan there's an old irish poker debate that i want you to weigh in on here one that still rages today about cowards and dreamers to give you the cliff notes the cowards are the nitty guys who build their bankrolls slowly look for the soft games bum hunt the dreamers take shots and even take pride in their willingness to get into games with tougher opponents you're known to be a bit of a value hunter but you've also played in cash games against the very best players in the world john hennigan cindy violet nick frangos phil ivy of course to name just a few in which of these camps do you think you belong no, I'm definitely in the uh, carrot one. I, I, <laughs> I have a, a theory on, on playing. Like, you should be playing where you have an advantage over the field. I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing, but say you can win a 20-40 poker, limit poker, and you're looking at a table across the way, and it's 40-80, it's but it's way tougher players. Why would you want to be the worst player at a 40-80 game than be the best player at a 20-40 game? If you improve enough where you're the best player in the 40-80 game, then you move up. Otherwise, there's no reason to move up. As you move up in stakes, people play better, obviously. So what you need to do is you need to find your niche where you can play in the game and still have an advantage over the table. If you're the worst player at one limit, as opposed to being a winning player at another limit, it's obviously you want to play the highest limit where you're a winning player, and you have to find that niche for yourself. That's basically my, my outlook on that. Well, there you go, dreamers. Your approach to poker is not chainsaw approved. Um, well, finally, Alan, the consummate poker grinder, Joel Bagels Rosenberg, was the inspiration for the character Joey Knish in the seminal poker film Rounders. It probably says a lot about me that he's the character, a coward, I suppose, in many ways. I always gravitated towards, and it strikes me that you could just as easily have been the inspiration for that character, of course, memorably played by John Turturro in the film. Yes, yeah, also. He also played a similar character in this movie, 21. If you've never seen that movie, it's an amazing movie. It's a, about the game show scandals. Oh, I really, didn't, really but cool. I will definitely check that out. Yeah. Alan, you've been exercised a lot recently about the Big Blind Ante. Could you summarize your views on Big Blind Ante? Here's the thing with the Big Blind Ante. It's become very, very popular, but there's a few issues with the Big Blind Ante. Number one, if you know you're the next table to break and you're going to be the Big Blind in, say, three or four hands, there's a lot of stalling that goes on because somebody doesn't want to have to pay that huge penalty before the table breaks. So it's like a whole process where first one guy will stall and the next guy, and it completely changes the flow of the game when you're the next table to break. Another problem that I've seen is when your table actually does break. In the old system, when you became the big blind at the new table, it wasn't that big of a deal. But now, if you break and pay the big blind and then pay the big blind again, it's a severe, severe penalty for that player. So th th those two things 
are full rig problems. A few other problems I've noticed is, um, let's say you're playing mid to late stages of the tournament, and you're at pretty big blind levels, but there's 12 tables or so left. Some tables will be nine-handed, other tables will be seven-handed at this point. So basically the nine-handed table is paying a nine-handed rake, and the seven-handed table is paying a nine-handed rake. But the problem is, the seven-handed table hits the big blind much more often than the nine-handed table. And the person on the nine-handed table actually gets two free hands per orbit more than the person at the seven-handed table. Mm. And people are saying, that's a random event. But if you think about it, if this happens for, you know, an hour or so, that's, that's a big deal. So mm. that's my second gripe, which nobody's really explained how to fix that one. But my main gripe with the big blind ante, which some places have addressed, and, and uh, Matt Savage, for example, will not address, the Aria will not address, is when tables get short. So let's say you're playing, you're down to the final table, and now you're six-handed. You're still paying the nine-handed nine ante. Now you're down to five-handed. You're still paying it. Now you're four-handed, three-handed. When you're three-handed and you're paying for nine people, there's no justification for that. So the obvious answer for this, which the win came up with, which I'm trying to get other places to uh, address this fact, the win at either four or five-handed, I forget which one it is. I think Party Poker also does this on their events. They reduce the amount of the big blind ante to the small blind. So, for example, say it's four and 8,000, and you normally post an 8,000 extra ante. When it's four or five-handed, they only post a 4,000 extra ante to offset that. So I really like that idea. But yeah. I have a patented system that I came up with that solves the whole problem of the shorthanded situations, which is you use the big blind ante for the entire tournament. When you do your first redraw at, say, 27, you just go back to regular antes. That way, you've gotten the advantage of the speed of the big blind ante the entire tournament. And then when you get down to the last three tables, when you have huge antes and you're playing for all the money, everything is perfect. Everybody's paying the exact blind they should be. Everything is perfect all the way down to the final table and the winner. Another option is to eliminate the big blind ante entirely at the final table because there's a lot of different you know situations at the final table where even like seven and six and five-handed where you're paying huge amount more than the antes would normally be. So those are my two fixes for it. Well, Alan, I have no doubt now that you've said it in about two years' time, they'll do it and they'll all come groveling back to you. Well, Alan, aside from your remarkable career, it's no doubt, it's unquestionable, in fact, that you've affected some real change in the industry. And I want to say thank you very much for joining us today. All right, no problem. Thanks, Alan. Well, as a tribute to our guest, Alan Kessler, playing us out this week is a track from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre soundtrack. This is Daddy's Sick Again.
Thanks again to Kevin, Ben and Alan. Next week's show features Mixed Game Beast and the UK's only triple bracelet winner, Benny Glazer. Until then, from Dara Ian and myself, good night and good luck. (laughs) 